Good morning, everybody. How are you today? I think I asked that already, but I lose track. So I am so excited. I'm excited that you're here. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited just to be alive. And during that first song, I snuck back and chugged even more coffee. So like in five, ten minutes, things are going to get awesome. Just wait. I'm excited you're here. Like I said, I'm Elliot, and uh, if this is your first time, your second time, your 100 millionth time, that seems a little bit like a long time, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you've chosen to spend time with us this morning. If you would do me for a, a, if you would do me a favor for a second, that's what that sentence was going to be. In the pocket of the chair in front of you, there's a card like this, and on one side is some like information stuff. On the other side is my favorite side. It's a prayer card, and if you would fill that out for us, anonymous or not, it just helps us pray for you during the week and with you. It's not like we're connecting strings on walls to, like, figure out what the gossip is and what's going on around town. It just helps us to pray and minister to you and your families throughout the week. So fill that out. We'll, uh, we'll collect those later on. I want to ask you a question, and it might feel like a little personal question. So, like, hang in there. And it, it, it exclude today. So like yesterday, back, everybody gets a free pass today. But you're going to talk to your neighbor. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Here's the question. What is the gaudiest piece of clothing you've ever worn? Important part, by choice. Because we all have pictures of us as kids where like our parents dressed us up. As a parent, I know that I've done that. So go ahead, talk to each other. What's the gaudiest piece of clothing you've ever worn by choice? Go ahead. For me, it's probably not hard to think of a dozen different examples. But I want to share with you something that middle school Elliot in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade was a very big fan of, and that's Jinko jeans. And if you guys remember, this was big in the 90s. I don't know if it came all the way out here to St. Louis, but in Phoenix, that was happening. And this guy actually, like, in 2016, like, did some BuzzFeed video, like, I wore Jinkos for a whole week. Like, what? Why? What makes you think of that? Anyway, I had like the coolest black pair with like an orange stripe all the way down the side, and I could have fit like six roller skates in one pant leg. I don't know why we measure things by roller skates, but you know, that was like the cool thing. It was the, all the cool kids had Jinkos, and I was, you know, not going to be left out. I remember my brother once had a pair, and he was complaining to my mom that the pants that he was replacing weren't baggy enough, and he like grabbed him, and he's like, these are skin tight with, like, all of this, like, loose slack. It was crazy. He was just unsatisfied with the amount of pant leg that he had. But, yeah, I was a big fan of Jinkos, and when you skateboarded, it was incredibly difficult, but if you got it right, like, the denim just swayed. It was perfect. It was just beautiful. But that was weekday Elliot. The weekends were a little bit different because I had a bad case of Saturday night fever. And I, somewhere along the way, discovered my dad's leisure suits. And this is not me, but you guys probably remember this. I had some that were not far off of that. And every Sunday morning, middle school Elliot would be walking around church like, yeah, this is how we dress in the 2000s, you know? I mean, they were cheap at Goodwill. Like, I could get so many of them. What a magical time to be alive, right? 
Who wants to go back? <laughs> so our fashion choices could be based on a lot of different things. Personal taste, what's hip with the times, and I try to be somewhat current, somewhat modern. You know, it's not a secret that I am a big fashion icon around here. <laughs> That's hurtful. And I think we could all agree that our fashion, the things we wear, the clothes that we have in our closet, are really dependent on people around us. Whether it's individuals specific that we know, like I gotta think about what my sister-in-law thinks, or I gotta think about what the students will say if I wear this or another option. Or sometimes it's just the culture at large. I think the fashion choices you and I make are largely influenced by other people. But sometimes people can have a much bigger influence on our lives. And that's what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks and a couple of weeks yet. People can influence us in a lot of different ways, for better, for worse. The influence that other people have on us can have a really big impact. And we're calling it, who are you following? Not just today, people can have an influence, whether it's Instagram or in person, at work, at home, wherever. We want to look at the Bible and see some of the people who can influence us to be better followers of Jesus. Because the things that we do, not just the clothes we wear, but I think the things we do are influenced by other people as well. And a lot of the time, the things that we know we shouldn't do, or the things that we're struggling to fight the temptation to do, are influenced by others as well. And today we're looking at a story of a guy named Joseph who faced and fled from a temptation in a really interesting way, and I think we can learn a lot about it. Also, Joseph, our friend, had a knack for fashion. In case you haven't seen Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, hit that one, Donny Osmond. Yeah, I watched that this week for the first time ever, 1999, straight to DVD. Check it out, it's on YouTube. There's German subtitles, but it's okay. He was, you know, just, that is like the second most 90s thing I saw all week, right after Jinko Jeans. The Technicolor Dreamcoat is an episode that we're not really covering. And if you've been around a couple of times, go ahead. If you've got your Bibles, flip to Genesis 39. We'll be camping out there most of today. It's also, we're in the Bible app. Doug knows more about that. He could give us some instructions if we wanted him to, but we'll just struggle through silently. It's okay. Genesis 39 is where we'll be. And if you know me, if you've been here when I've talked before, you know that I might have a tendency to get, like, way too in-depth, way too into the weeds on, like, the background of minute things. So to avoid that today, I'm giving myself a limit. I'm giving myself a minute, just 30, no, 60 seconds. I think that's how much a minute was last time I checked. 60 seconds to share with you all the way from Genesis 1 to Genesis 39 and catch us all up to speed, okay? So I think the best way to do that is with Legos. I think we could all agree. So, Joey, let's put that timer up there and let's begin. In the beginning, God created everything, the heavens and the earth, and it was like land, and it was good. He also created a dude named Adam and his wife, Eve, and these people were the crowning jewel of his creation. And he gave them one rule. He said, hey, you see that tree over there? Whatever you do, don't eat from it. They said, mm, nah, and they did it anyway. They sinned, and there were some consequences. But even in the midst of those consequences, God says there's going to be a redeemer, a rescuer, someone who's going to come and make everything right. But first, it's going to be 
getting worse before it gets better. We eventually see this downward spiral of humanity. Brother kills brother. Everybody rebels against God. There's a big flood. Everybody comes together to try and oppose God and build this tower up to the heavens. Eventually, God chooses a guy named Abram. Abraham later on. He says, you, Abram, will be the one who brings this redeemer, this rescuer into existence through you and your family. Oh my gosh, five seconds. Abraham has a son named Isaac, who eventually he has to pretend like he's sacrificing. Isaac has a son named Jacob, who one time wrestles with God. We'll keep going. It's okay. And Jacob has 12 sons. His favorite is named Joseph, and he gives him an amazing technicolor dream coat, and some way shows the favoritism for for Joseph. And his brothers don't like it. His brothers are mad, so they throw him into a well. And then they sell him to Ishmaelites, who are like their second cousins. And then they stage their brother's death by giving the coat back to their dad and say, hey, you see this coat? See, he's dead, I promise. And meanwhile, Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt to a guy named Potiphar. And that gets us to Genesis 39. So that was like 90 seconds. That's not too bad, right? Way better than the like 25 minutes I spent other times. So in Genesis 39, let's see what happens to Joseph. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Potiphar is this character who represents like sort of the prison warden. He's in charge of the prisoners. He's in charge of keeping them captive, and he probably was the chief executioner. Like if you're in charge of the prisoners, You're also in charge of the death row prisoners, and you're also in charge of, you know, making that happen. So Joseph is sold into slavery to, like, the guy who kills people for a living. That's not a good place to be. Think about he's gone from the favorite son in a wealthy, powerful, influential family, and because of his brothers, because of his cousins, he finds himself in this position— Stripped of identity, stripped of any sense of who he might be or where he might be. He is enslaved in a strange land, and he finds himself isolated. That's difficult. But watch what happens in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. God is still present with Joseph. He's in this very dark, difficult episode of life. Yet in the middle of that struggle, in the middle of the darkness, God is present. God is there, and he's, he's working on Joseph's behalf. It says he's successful, not in like the wealth, power kind of way we tend to view success today. More like what he was tasked with, he accomplished, and he did it well. And God is with him in such a way that Potiphar notices something about him, like this guy has something going for him. God is working for this man. He is up to something here. Potiphar is impressed. And in verse 4, this pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. 
With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Talk about living the life, right? Like I get to kick back. Somebody else does my work for me. I just got to figure out how I'm going to fatten myself up today. That's a pretty high position to be in. So Joseph's in the middle of this struggle, this battle, this, this dark episode whoa, in life. And in the midst of that, God is with him and working on his behalf. And Potiphar's actually receiving a benefit of a promise that God gave to Abraham generations ago. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And this is the important part. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Potiphar is being benefited by God working through and in the life of Joseph. He's one of those, I will bless those who bless you cases. It's a pretty good time to be Potiphar, if we're being honest. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. Think about the turn of events. Through no fault of his own, he finds himself in this terrible state, this lowly position, stripped of rights, dignity, humanity. How have you felt like that before? What are the seasons, the moments, the episodes in your life that have been dark, trying, difficult. And in those moments, have you felt like God was present or absent? Joseph's in that place, and it'd be really easy to give up, but he doesn't. But first, I want to ask you a question. And this is another talk amongst yourselves question, much less personal, I promise that. When have you seen trouble coming for somebody else from a mile away? It's often very easy to see somebody else heading for disaster, right? Like, oh, they are headed straight for a cliff, and it's much more difficult for ourselves a lot of the time. So talk to each other. When have you seen trouble coming for somebody else a mile away? Go ahead. guys seem more talkative now. I think we just have to make fun of other people, right? Is that the thing? So we can see sometimes, especially if you're a parent or if you work with kids, you can see them a lot of time like, hey, you're going to regret doing this someday or in like five minutes. We can see other people headed for trouble a lot of the time. And Joseph is actually one of those cases. At the end of verse 6, so I only read part of it to you before. Let's go back and read what we have. Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. And then they add, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. That's like 
why? Why would they put that there? Why would they include that? It's like foreshadowing. Just like you can see your kids or your coworkers sometimes heading for disaster, this is a clue that something's about to go wrong. The Bible actually does this in a few different places. When they talk about somebody's physical attractiveness or beauty in a really positive way, it's like a signal like, hey, something's about to get worse before it gets better. And for Joseph, unfortunately, that's the case. There's like an old, old legend that some rabbi said somewhere that when God created humanity, half of the beauty he split between Joseph and Joseph's mother, Rebecca, and the other half he gave to everybody else. So like that's the kind of beauty we're talking about. Very beautiful. Joseph was handsome and well-built, a storm's a brewing. That's what we're supposed to read into that. Verse 7, And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. Now pause there and think of the power dynamics. You've got this guy who is really at the beck and call of, of Potiphar, of anybody else in the family. And now this person in a position above him, in a position of authority and power, is not just requesting, but demanding that they get together. And as you're feeling like Joseph, as you're feeling low in the darkness, in the depths, I would imagine it's really difficult to be in that situation, to feel really torn between, she could make my life miserable, spoiler alert, but I know I shouldn't do this. That's a tough situation to be in. But I love his response. This is verse 8. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Duh. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. I love this response for a million different reasons, but I think it shows us a couple of things that we can do when we're faced with temptation, like Joseph is. First, he follows the timeless advice of Ice Cube. He checks himself before he wrecks himself. As true today as it was back then. He sort of takes stock of reality. He's like, I'm in this position. I have responsibilities. I have authority. He checks what reality is. He understands the situation. He understands not just where he is, who's at play, but he also understands what's at risk. If he actually gives into this temptation, what he could lose, what could happen to him. He understands it. He checks himself before he wrecks himself. And the second thing he does, he calls that sin what it is. And let's distinguish for a minute between being tempted to do something that, you know, we know we shouldn't, and actually doing it are two different things, right? We can agree that, like, just being tempted is not the same thing as actually giving in to that temptation and doing it. That giving in, he names it really specifically as a sin. He calls it a wicked thing. Like, those are strong words. But he clearly has an idea of what that sin would actually be. Not just who it would affect, 
Yes, it would be a sin against Potiphar, against Potiphar's wife. It would be just like a generally nasty thing to do. But also, he calls it a sin against God. And I think if we look at the potential sin in our lives, the things that we are tempted to regularly, day after day, if we looked at that as a sin against God, I think that would help us to hold on to our resolve help us to be stronger in the face of that temptation. Because it's not just a little white lie that I told to them, because, I mean, it was going to hurt their feelings anyway if I told them the truth. I'm not robbing a bank. I'm just fudging the numbers on my taxes a little bit. I think we need to see the sin for what it is and understand that it's not just, in a, it doesn't just affect people around us, which it does, but it also is a sin against God himself. I think for Joseph, that gives him strength, that gives him uh, endurance to stand up to the demands that Potiphar's wife was making. If we keep reading in verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way. Like, it's persistent, this temptation for Joseph. Pretty much present all the time, I would imagine. Difficult to stand up against regularly in his face. She is demanding that he do this, but he avoids it. That's the third thing. He avoids the temptation, sidesteps the interactions. It's like at a middle school dance when the boys are on one side and all the girls, the crushes are on the other side. It's like, I better avoid going to that bathroom. I better go to the one that's around the back of the hall because otherwise they're going to think I'm coming over to dance and I'm not wearing the right shoes. And we've all done that. We've all avoided situations that are destructive or just going to be awkward or we've tiptoed around the boss because we know that we were late with that report last week or whatever the case may be. Joseph avoids this temptation as much as he can. First, he understands reality. Second, he calls that sin what it is, and understands who he's sinning against. And third, he avoids the temptation as much as he can. Verse 11, one day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. So that's like, you know, the scary movie. When the groups get separated, and like the camera follows just that one person who's in the like empty house or mine shaft or whatever the case is. I don't know why they're in a mine shaft. They just are because it's a scary movie. When they go there and the one person is singled out, you know how things are going to end very shortly for that poor fellow or lady. You know, discriminate. That's what's happening here. He was all alone, went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by the cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran out of the house. He, like, gets out of Dodge. He does whatever it takes. Whatever the cost is to avoid this temptation, to run from it, he flees the scene in a good way, not a bad way like we use it today. He gets away. He avoids that temptation at all costs. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and had fled, she called out for her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came in my, into my room to rape me, but I screamed. 
When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave that you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, he said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. So she concocts this whole scheme to frame Joseph for something that he actually has gone to great lengths to avoid so that he wouldn't do it. There's a couple of things that are really interesting in this story that she cooks up. First of all, she screams for like the, the servants, the other people to come in. She didn't have to do that, right? Like there's nobody else in the house. She, the worst thing that she was actually facing that she actually had to deal with was like awkwardness next time Joseph was around. Like, oh, hey, last week I remember, sorry about that. Like that's all that's at stake. But instead she's kind of vindictive. I think she was angry and wanted Joseph to be punished because she, wouldn't, she couldn't get him to accept her advances. So she screams, and she mentions that she screams like 15 times as she's telling this story. Why is she doing that? It's an alibi. She's building an alibi because back then, thousands of years ago, if a woman is accusing someone of rape, but she can't prove that she screamed, like that's her defense against it, then like she could be held accountable as well. Like obviously if you didn't scream, you must not have, you know, hated it. You must not have really been opposed to it. She's building this alibi all at Joseph's expense. And she blames like everybody except for herself. She says that Hebrew slave that Potiphar brought in He's the one who's responsible, obviously. It's his house, his servant. We know where the buck stops. She's blaming Potiphar, even to his face. And she's tapping into something that a lot of Egyptians back then would have perked their ears up at. Egypt was sort of an isolated kingdom, community on the African continent. Like, it was close to Asia and Europe, but it was separated by some pretty expansive desert. So they were isolated, and when they came into contact with other peoples, there was a certain level of mistrust, of animosity that they would hold for people who were different from them. So she's repeating, again, that Hebrew slave, this slave that's from another place. And I so wish that that was just, like, a relic of humanity in the past. But unfortunately, we hear that today. Every time someone is considered less than or more dangerous or inferior just because of where they're from or the color of their skin or what their background is or their history or for us St. Louis folks, what high school did you go to? Every time that someone is treated as the other, we're tapping into the same fears and anxieties that the Egyptians were dealing with so many years ago. So think about the moments that you've faced temptation, whether it's a one-time thing that just sprang up or if it's a recurring thing. Are you more like Joseph, standing firm, or are you more prone to give in? What are the times that you've avoided things in the past and it's helped with those temptations? What are the things that you know every time 
is going to lead to some temptation that you don't want to deal with. And I know that's like a little heavy. I'm not going to make you talk with each other about that. So let's go to prison. That sounds weird. Let's keep going. Verse 10, 19. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about Joseph, about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. So Potiphar's mad, but the text is a little bit unclear who he's mad at. Like there may be hints that he doesn't fully believe his wife's story. And the fact that Potiphar doesn't have him executed, like on the spot, is interesting. It's unique. Prison was like a uniquely Egyptian concept back then. Most of the time, people were just, you know, like put to death. In fact, this would have been a capital offense. This would have been like Joseph is usurping the authority and the power of Potiphar and trying to put himself in his boss's position. So it's really surprising that he doesn't get executed. But in the prison, something happens. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. See the echoes from before? The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Again, as things are going very poorly for Joseph, God is there. He is present. He is with Joseph through the struggle, the storm, call it what you will. God is with Joseph in the darkness. And as you see Joseph's life go through these ups and downs, this roller coaster, the highs and the lows, we see God being present each step of the way. And that's really the genius of the story. Just like before with Potiphar, and now in the prison, God is doing something. It's really different with Joseph's story because his, father, his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, have all these stories where like, they're interacting with God, like having a face-to-face -face conversation. God comes and like, has, a, has a discussion with them, like, hey, what should we do here? Or they like, wrestle all night long, which is a weird story we'll get into another time. But here, God is more in the background. It's like he's behind the scenes, orchestrating things to put Joseph in the position he wants him to be in. And this prison is actually a really important place for Joseph to be. That's how this, this chapter ends, but that's not how the story ends. And so if we can go back to our brick testament, I'd like to, again, rush through what happens from this point of the story forward, if that's okay with, with you. I don't know why I ask. I'm going to do it anyway. So, Joey, we got the timer up. In the prison, Joseph interprets two dreams of other prisoners who are palace officials. One of them is released later on, and Pharaoh has a dream, and the guy's like, hey, by the way, there's this dude in prison two years ago. He helped me out. He could probably interpret your dream too. Joseph does, and he's called upon to interpret, and he gets promoted, and he is now the second in command over all of Egypt. How's that for a twist? Eventually, there's a famine in Egypt and also in the land of Canaan where his brothers live. And so they're like, hey, let's go down to Egypt. Let's get some grain, get some food. It'll be great. We'll eat. 
they go, they're reunited with Joseph, everything is great, everything is happy, they move into the neighborhood, they have like this whole land to themselves, but eventually the Egyptians enslave the Hebrews. And after centuries of oppression and, and degradation, a guy named Moses leads them to freedom, and they enter into the promised land. And it's through these Israelites, through these people, that we ultimately get Jesus. He did it. And Jesus shows us God's presence in the world. Shows us God's presence in our lives. Just like Joseph, we face struggles, we face temptations, and oftentimes can feel like God is absent or somewhere else. Like our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, if that. But Jesus is the proof that God is dedicated and committed enough and loves us enough to actually step into our story, step into the mess that you and I created to change everything, to redeem us, to rescue us. And the question we can ask when it comes to the Joseph story is, was Joseph faithful to God because God was with him, or was God with him because Joseph was faithful to God? And I like to think that the answer to that question is yes. I think it's a both-and situation. Even for us today, the more we lean into the presence of God in our lives, the more we're going to feel close with him, the more we're going to turn to him, the more we're going to respond in the ways that he wants us to. And the more we do that, the more aware of his presence we become, and on and on and on it goes. It's like a snowball going downhill, only it doesn't, like, catastrophically injure a village or something. God's presence gives us the strength to flee from temptation. Just like Joseph fled, you and I can flee as well. And his presence gives us the power to do that and the strength. And God is with us every step of the way, and Jesus is our reminder of that. So I've been talking for like half an hour about temptation and stuff, and it's probably a little bit uncomfortable, and that's okay. But here's like three things, like homework, but I'm not grading, don't worry. Take-home test. If you want to like actually take temptation seriously, here's, do any one of these things. First, identify the temptation that you have. Maybe it's like Joseph, maybe it's something sexual in nature, maybe it's not. Maybe it's more about the substances that you use to numb the pain. Maybe it's about the money that you're trying to get in your bank account. Maybe it's more about the gossip and the, the relationships that you're vindictive about. We all have some temptation that will appear again and again throughout our days. Name it. Come to terms with it and name it and tell yourself, this is my temptation. This is what I'm struggling to avoid. And after that, frame it right. Call that sin what it is. Not just a sin that affects other people, which it will, which it does, or affects you negatively, but also a sin that fractures the relationship with God. Also a sin against the creator of the universe. And last, figure out a way to flee that situation. Avoid the temptation, avoid whatever situation brings that temptation about, like the plague. And remember that it's Jesus and his presence in our hearts that gives us that strength to flee. It's not our own self, like, 
self-discipline. It's not our own strength that enables us to flee the temptation. It's all because of Jesus. The band is going to come up here, and we'll sing a song, and, and, and we'll be able to just think on those words. Think on the love that God has shown for us each step of the way. The love that God continually gives us, and the strength that he can offer us to resist that temptation. Let's pray. God, you are good, and you are gracious, and we are profoundly grateful for the love you give that we could never earn or deserve. I pray this week that you would help us to be honest with ourselves. In this moment, help us to, to hear your voice, to hear your words echoing in our heads, and help us identify those temptations, those opportunities we have to flee, to avoid. Father, just give us the guidance. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.